You are listening to audio recorded at the Village Church. For more information, go to villagechurchbaltimore.com. Um, but yeah, let's continue on with today's service. Um, I'm going to invite up Annalise. She's going to be reading our scripture, Romans 8. 18 to 30, if you guys would stand up for the reading of today's scripture. Today's reading comes from Romans 8, 18 through 30. For I consider the sufferings of the present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is going to be revealed to us. For the creation eagerly waits with anticipation for God's sons to be revealed. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in the hope that the creation itself will also be set free from the bondage to decay into the glorious freedom of God's children. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together with labor pains until now. Not only that, but we ourselves, who have the Spirit as the firstfruits, we also groan within ourselves, eagerly waiting for adoption, the redemption of our bodies. Now in this we hope, now in this hope we were saved. But hope that is seen is not hope, because who hopes for what he has sees? Now now if we hope for what we do not see, we eagerly wait for it with patience. In the same way, the Spirit also helps us in our weakness, because we do not know what to pray for as we should. But the Spirit himself intercedes for us with unspoken groanings. And he who searches our hearts knows the mind of the Spirit, because he intercedes for the saints according to the will of God." We know that all things work together for the good of those who love God, who are called according to his purpose. For those he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, so that he would be the firstborn among many brothers and sisters. And those he predestined, he also called. And those he called, he also justified. And those he justified, he also glorified. All right, you may be seated. Um, Let's go ahead and pray. Dear Father, we're just so in awe of who you are, that you are a God who doesn't doesn't run from us in the midst of suffering, but you beckon us to come closer to you so that you may let us know that You are walking with us. And so, Father, I just pray today that this will be an opportunity for us to realize what it means to persevere even in the midst of really tough times. And so I just pray that the words in my mouth and the meditations of my heart, would they be acceptable in your sight? Pray this in your most glorious name. Amen. In 1994, boxer Michael Moore became the first ever Southpaw boxing champion. For those who don't know what a Southpaw is, that's a left-handed boxer. And he beat Evander Holyfield. And after the fight, this is a historic, a momentous fight, a momentous win for Michael. You would think that the reporters, that everybody would be asking what it feels like to be a champion what it feels like to finally get the win, to beat someone so great as Evander Holyfield. 
But that's not what the reporters wanted to know. That's not what people wanted to know right after the fight. They actually kept asking him, you know, what did it feel like when you got knocked down in one of those rounds? What were you thinking? What was going through your mind? And Michael had a great response. He says, I thought what everybody thinks. How did I get down here? How did I get down here? And in the midst of suffering, in the midst of chaos, when everything seems to be crumbling down around you, I think that's a question we tend to ask ourselves. How did I get down here? How did we get to this place? What's going on? What's happening? And how am I going to be able to get back up again? What's going to help me to continue to persevere? And in Romans 8, 8 to 30, I mean 18 to 30, Paul starts us on this journey to help us to get back up again. He helps us to understand that we can continue to persevere. And we see this in verse 18, the first part of 18, where he says, For I consider that the suffering of this present time. For I consider that the suffering of this present time. He, Paul wants us to understand that suffering is a part of this world. It's just a fact of life. We are either in one of three stages currently suffering, coming out of suffering, or about to go into suffering. It's pretty depressing, but it is kind of the fact of life that we're in one of those three stages. But Paul does give us some semblance of hope with the key phrase in verse 18, suffering of this present time. It's as H.P. Charles says, suffering has a limit. It's not an imperishable item. It is perishing. Suffering is fading away. But Paul doesn't point this out to diminish or demean the suffering that we currently experience, our hurt, our pain. It is very real. It's not something to be ignored. We have to deal with it. And Paul knows this better than anyone. Paul, all throughout his ministry, has been chased out of town after town because he causes revival, and the government and the leadership is like, no, you got to get out. We can't have you here. And Paul right now is, or not right now, but back then, was writing this letter to the Romans while he is in jail because he wants to go see Caesar. And when he sees Caesar in order to proclaim the gospel, guess what's about to happen to him? He's going to be beheaded for his faith. If anyone knows suffering, it is the author of this book, Paul. He is experiencing suffering every single solitary day. So even though Paul knows that this suffering, it's a present suffering, it's something that it is fading away, it's temporary, he also acknowledges that it's really hard to wait. It's really hard to wait when everything seems to be crumbling down around you. In our our world, it's just really hard to wait in general for anything. It's hard to wait in line. It's hard to wait at the airport in order to get checked in. It's hard to wait at the DMV only to be told when you are finally seen you don't have the right documentation. Go back home. Come back next week. It's hard to wait but it's even harder to wait when everything is crumbling down around you. 
It's hard to wait when you caught COVID and you have to isolate yourself from friends and family. It's hard to wait when you're stressed out over bills and you don't know where that income, that revenue stream is going to come from. It's hard to wait when you're having to watch a loved one who's possibly under deathbed and you can't do anything about it but watch. It's hard to wait. The suffering may be temporary, but it still hurts. We still feel this thing, the pain of suffering. It's not easy. This is why Paul's analogy of a woman giving childbirth in verses 19 to 23 is so apt. And before I start kind of describing this, I want to say this. I am for childbirth. It is a beautiful thing. But I have to state a reality. Women get the raw end of the, raw end of the deal in this situation. It is not easy. For nine months, their bodies change to fit the needs of the child so much so that if they eat something that that child doesn't like, the child lets them know immediately. It is real, and then the actual birth comes. You're there at the hospital, wherever you are, for hours upon hours. Let's just round it up to 12. And then the actual birth is constant groaning and moaning because of how much pain the woman is in. And then the baby is born, and it's so beautiful. But it got me thinking that something so beautiful such as childbirth is evidence of the ugliness of sin. In order for life to happen, pain must first occur. That's wild to me. We either have to experience that pain or watch someone else experience that pain. This is why creation and us groan and moan and hope for something better to come. We groan and moan because the pain is so great that words can't describe it. Words can't communicate how we are feeling. It's so deep-seated that it hurts. And all we can do is moan and groan because of the pain. Over the last couple of weeks, many of you know that my son has gone through the ringer. He had hand, foot, and mouth. He had the flu. He fell off the changing table. And each time that he was in pain, all he could do was whine, groan, and cry. He couldn't communicate and say, well, Father, based on my symptoms, I believe I have the flu. That would have been great. It would have helped us to understand and to say, okay, well, we need to go to the doctor and get the right medication. But no, all he could do was moan and grow. And I do believe that even in the midst of that, even with him being only seven and a half months old, he understood two things. One, he knew he is in pain, that whatever he is feeling hurts this hurts. And then number two, he is not supposed to feel this way. He's not supposed to feel this way. He understands what it's like to be healthy, to be normal, to have some semblance of normalcy. And he knows that the way he is feeling right now isn't the way it is supposed to be. And so similar to us in creation, we know we are in pain. And deep down, we know that this was not God's original intent for us. 
to live in suffering. Our sin has not only doomed us personally, but it's also doomed the rest of creation so that all of us moan and groan together. So how do you process your suffering? Do you ignore it? Do you minimize it? Do you take it out on loved ones? Do you put it into a box and throw it into an ocean somewhere hoping that it'll never come back up? Well, Paul gives us a better way to process, to begin that journey to understand how do we get back up again? How do we persevere on? And it's in lamenting. It's through lamentation. We need to learn to process our loved, one, our loved ones dying. We need to process being sexually taken advantage of. We need to process church hurt, having a miscarriage, and the list goes on. We need to take our sufferings, to take our hurt, our pain to God and not run from God. We need to learn to lament. And verses 26 and 27 invites us through the Holy Spirit to take our suffering to God. Verses 26 and 27. In the same way, the Spirit also helps us in our weakness because we do not know what to pray for as we should. But the Spirit himself intercedes for, for us with inexpressible groanings. And he who searches our hearts knows the mind of the Spirit because he intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. Paul invites us to accept the very, very deep theological term, life is hard. Life is hard. I remember early on in our marriage, my wife would confide in me about different aspects and different things she was struggling with. And one time I remember her telling me that she felt like she had no friends. And just real quick, just to take a pause in the story. This is back in Lynchburg. This isn't here. My wife has a lot of friends here. This is not to say if you want to be my wife's friend, go ahead, shoot your shot. I'm just saying, she has friends here. Don't everybody call her up being like, oh, I need to be your friend. This was back in Lynchburg, not in Baltimore. Let's resume the story. And so she told me she was struggling with having friends. And, you know, me and my infinite wisdom, I'll say, idiot of all idiots, um, I said, well, babe, let's just get you some friends. And for those who are not married yet or are thinking about becoming married, that's not what you say. That's just not what you say. Because my wife didn't need me to solve her problem. She didn't need me to fix her problem. She just needed me to empathize with her and say, babe, that's hard. Babe, that is really, really hard. It's not to say that there couldn't be ways that I could think better for her, but that's not what she needed in that moment. She just needed me to sit with her in her hurt. She just needed me to empathize with her. And so many times we react to suffering the way I reacted to my wife in that situation. We try to fix the problem or act like it's not that big a deal in the first place. 
In Christian culture, we are told to suffer well, right? But a lot of times, suffering well usually means not suffering at all. Because this suffering is only temporary and shouldn't bother us that much. We emphasize verses like Romans 8:28, which we will talk about in a little bit, or 2 Corinthians 4:17 that says, For our momentary light affliction is producing for us an absolutely incomparable eternal weight of glory. We emphasize these verses and we say, it shouldn't be that big a deal. Suffering shouldn't hurt that much. You don't need to process it because we have something so much better. But two things can be true at the same time. That this suffering is temporary. It could be light compared to what is to come. Truth. But right now, this hurts. Right now, this is hard. And so Paul does not prescribe us to ignore it, but to lament and process it, we need to actually take it to God. And there is something cathartic about saying, I am in pain. I am hurting. And the Holy Spirit leads us to God in order to lament. And I've been saying this word, the men, a lot, so let me just define it. This comes from Mark Rogop, and he says this, Lament is talking to God about pain, and it has a unique purpose, trust. It has a divinely given invitation to pour out our fears, frustrations, and sorrows for the purpose of helping us to renew our confidence in God. Lament is talking to God about our pain. And in talking to God about our pain, it's Him leading us and helping us to process and start the healing. That when we acknowledge its existence, it takes on less power. One of the things I've realized about being at the village is we are, uh, how do you say it? We really like the Enneagram personality test. We really, really like the Enneagram personality test. And I've realized that I'm an Enneagram 9. And one thing about Enneagram 9 is we tend to, when it comes to conflict, emotions, we put them up in a box, we throw them into some random ocean, they they sink to the bottom of the sea, and we know And I say no with quotations. We know that it won't come up and we will never have to deal with it. And let me tell you, it never works out that way. And I found myself throughout my life, throughout my marriage, having thrown my emotions or conflicts into that sea only to realize that I'm sitting on my couch one day crying for no reason. And my wife is looking at me saying, what's going on? And I'm saying, I don't know. I'm crying, and I don't know why. And it's not that pretty cry. I'm talking snot everywhere, tears everywhere. I look ugly, and I am just crying and trying to understand what's happening. What, I ha- what have I not dealt with? And it's because that box that I threw into the sea has come up, and this is my body saying to me, you have 
to deal with this. You have to deal with it. And now that it's been so long that you haven't dealt with this, guess what? Now it's come back, and it's come back with a vengeance. And that's what happens when we don't deal with our pain. That's what happens when we don't deal with whatever is going on. And it may take a long time, but the longer that we don't deal with it, the more powerful it becomes in our lives. So how do you lament? How do you cry out to God? Well, in Psalm 13, it shows us four ways for us to start that process of lamenting, of healing, and of God taking us through the lamentation process. Psalm 13:1. This is turn to God. How long, Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? To me, this is probably the hardest part in the process, to turn to God. To turn to the God that in the midst of everything crumbling down around you, it feels like he's abandoned you. Or it feels like he wants nothing to do with you. It feels like you've done something wrong and God is punishing you for some reason. And so this tends to be the hardest step, that first step of saying, I want to turn to you, God, and start this process. Number two, bring your complaint. How long will I store up anxious concerns within me? Agony in my mind every day. How long will my enemy dominate me? Bring your complaint to God. Let him know. Let him know your frustration. Let him know your anger. Let him know your sadness. Let him know. And be real with God. Tell him you're angry with him. He's a big boy. He can take it. He wants, he invites you to be honest with him. He already knows what's in your heart. And so let God know how you are truly feeling. Because a lot of times we tend to think that we always have to come to God in a right frame of mind or with the right attitude. That is not the case. God just wants you to come to him in the state that you are in in order so he can start the process of walking with you through whatever situation you are in. Bring your complaint to God. Number three, ask boldly for help. Verses 3 and 4, consider me and answer, Lord my God. Restore brightness to my eyes, otherwise I will sleep in death. My enemy will say I have triumphed over him, and my foes will rejoice because I am shaken. Ask boldly of God. This isn't just, you know, complain to God. This isn't just turn to God. But this is to say, I need you to guide me through this. Ask boldly of God to do something big to help you to learn to understand what you need to process. And that can be in the multitude of ways, but ask boldly for help. And lastly, choose to trust God, verses 5 and 6. But I have trusted in your faithful love. My heart will rejoice in your deliverance. I will sing to the Lord because he has treated me generously. 
I think this is one of the other hard steps in this process, to choose to trust God, to choose to believe that God is actually walking with you in the midst of your suffering, of your pain. But also, there's an aspect where you're trusting that there is a purpose to your pain, that what you're going through isn't just random, but what you're going, that what you're going through isn't just a vain pursuit, but God has a purpose behind your pain. So this brings us to verses 28 to 30, that our lament leads us to help us to trust in God, but also to know that God has a purpose through our suffering. 28 to 30, we know all things work together for the good of those who love God who are called according to his purpose. For those he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son, so that he would be the firstborn among many brothers and sisters. And those he predestined, he also called. And those he called, he also justified. And those he justified, he also glorified. So real quick before I really dive into this text, for all of the theologians out there who are probably wanting me to talk about, you know, specifically predestination, I'm going to disappoint. I'm going to disappoint. Because 28 to 30 isn't about predestination. It isn't about this particular doctrine. Because a lot of times this doctrine has been used as a litmus test to tell how solid or how theological a Christian is. It's been used as a doctrine that divides, and this shouldn't be the case. And there are many theories to the relationship between God's sovereignty to save and our free will. And I myself have a theory, but here's all I'll reveal about said theory. I am pro God saving a wretched sinner such as I. Amen? Amen. Like, I am pretty sure if I, when I make it to heaven, my first question isn't going to be, God, predestination, go. <laughs> I'm going to be weeping over his mercy and grace over my life. It's going to be an Isaiah 6 moment where I can't believe that this God came down in the form of a man and stood where I was supposed to stand and died on the cross for my sins. That's what I'm going to be weeping over, not how predestination works. But Paul brings up predestination to bolster his point from verse 18. Let me read the second part of verse 18. For I consider that the suffering of this present time, and here is part B, are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. It is that our suffering will not be in vain. Why? Because God has a plan to make everything right. He is going to make everything brand new. It says, N.T. Wright says, God's covenant faithfulness was always about his commitment. Commitment that through the promises to Abraham, he would one day put the whole world to rights. Paul's desire for us is to remember that our pain, however great, 
will come to an end. This is why African Americans during slavery would sing songs like, Swing low, sweet chariot, coming to carry me home. Swing low, sweet chariot, coming to carry me home. And a couple of weeks ago, Dan, you know, sung his thing, that's not me. You know, so just if that was your expectation, that's not me. The slaves didn't just sing because they had a mere hope. A lot of times we think of hope as something that is possible but improbable. Sort of like making a half-court shot to win the game or throwing a Hail Mary to win a football game. Could it happen? Yeah. Would it probably happen? Should you bet on that? No. They didn't sing out of an improbable hope, but they sung out of a certain reality. They knew that the future glory was coming. It was real to them. They knew that their suffering was fading away, that even if they suffered in this life, oh, they would be delivered in the next life. They sung because they knew that that hope wasn't just a mere hope. It wasn't just an improbable possibility. It was something that was going to happen. And that's what helped them to persevere. But just as an aside, this coming relief doesn't mean that we are called to do nothing now. We are not the quote-unquote frozen chosen. Our salvation through the finished work of Jesus Christ doesn't give us license to do nothing in the here and now. It isn't a justification for injustice and suffering to happen all around us and we sit back and act like nothing is going on. No, Ephesians 2, 8 and 9 does say that we are saved by grace through faith through the finished work of Jesus Christ. It's by his work, not our work. But Ephesians 2.10, which says that we are God's workmanship to do what? To do good works. It means that our works don't save us, but our works are an evidence of our salvation. So even in the here and now, we are called to fight against injustice, but we are also called to help those who are suffering in the here and now. Paul emphasizing the coming relief isn't meant to demean or diminish the pain, but it's to know that it's not forever. This isn't going to be forever. There is an end to your pain, and there is a better future. And knowing that helps us to persevere. It helps us to get back up off the mat when, it, when we have been knocked down by life. And there's a purpose, as it says in verse 28, that our suffering, our pain is a training, training ground. This time is prepping us. It's sanctifying us for our ultimate glorification. It is helping us to look more like Jesus Christ each and every day. For us and everything around us, it is being made new, that God is taking us to the ultimate goal, that everything would be put to rights. Verses 28 and 30 reminds us that God is with us in the midst of our suffering. He is not watching, thinking, well, maybe I'll help. No, he is right there in the midst of it. 
There is a method to his madness, and everything is going to work out for his ultimate good, or for our ultimate good. Even in the midst of our death, everything will work out for our good. And this is why it's important for us to focus less on how are we going to get out of suffering? That when we're in the midst of suffering, we need to focus less on where is the exit sign? When is this going to end? Because a lot of times what happens is we're missing what God is doing in suffering, that it grows our faith, it deepens our trust in God, it causes us to grow. And so instead of asking, how are we going to get out of suffering, we should be asking, what is God teaching me in the midst of this? What is God teaching me in the midst of this? Because as we see in verses 28 to 30, God is always at work in the believer's lives. The suffering we endure while it is uncertain to us is not uncertain to God. He is not surprised. And knowing that he is sovereign, that he is in control, should provide an assemblance of peace, that it's not in vain, there is a purpose to our pain and agony. It's prepping us for our ultimate future glory. This is the training ground. It is prepping us for what is to come. That this affliction is light, but it's painful. But there's something so much better in the future. And it's going to make everything right. You know, many of you know that this last month for the Thomases hasn't been great to say the least. Um, Sarah caught COVID. Um, Trey came home from daycare, then he gave us colds. And then after that, we all caught the flu. And then somewhere in between that, Sarah and Trey got hand, foot, and mouth. Trey fell off a changing table. And then this past week, I was in the hospital for a couple of days due to an infection. It hasn't been great. It hasn't been great. And this is going to sound bad um, about what I'm about to say, but you'll understand in a second. Um, but I'm preaching to myself, and y'all just happen to be here. Because I've been looking for the exit sign. I've been looking for the end. I've been wondering, can we, can we take much more? Can we continue on? Can we persevere? I'm looking at God like, you know, what's going on, man? When is this going to end? When is this time frame going to end? When are we going to be out of suffering and then, you know, preparing for the next suffering? Because we just need a break, man. So I've been looking for the end to come. But even in the midst of all that, God has been showing me in little ways that he's here. Like, as I said, this past week and even this past month has shown me the beauty of the community of the body of Christ. That people are ready. And this is God saying, like, I understand you're hurting, but I got reinforcements coming, bro. 
Just wait. I got the people of God. They are ready and they are willing and they are already there. Even this sermon, I wasn't supposed to preach Romans 8, 18 to 30. I was supposed to preach the victorious 31 to 39. And things got flipped up, and I was like, okay, I'll go with 18 to 30, not realizing that this would parallel my life. And I'm sitting there at my computer trying to come up with transition questions. I say, you know, how do you guys lament? And then the Holy Spirit looks at me and says, how do you lament, Julius? It's been really, really hard. And I'll be honest, I don't have all the answers. Things are uncertain. But there are two things that I know. There are two things that I know. One is, this pain is real. This is real. It's, it's been hard. And then the only thing that I know that keeps me going is that my God is better. That my God is better. That my God did send and come down in the form of a man and died on the cross for my sins. He took on hunger pains. He took on the weight of the world. And he said, Julius, I'm going to stand in your stead. Sarah, I'm going to stand in your stead. And guess what? When I am on the cross and I am alone, I do that in order so that you will never have to be alone. I know this pain is real right now. That's what I know. But I also know I have no hope outside of Christ. That my God is better. That my God is here. And that everything seems to be not going the Thomas's way. And yet, I can still say God's blessings are yes and amen. So I don't know where you're at today. I don't know... If you're questioning God, if you're, if you're a Christian, but here's what I know. We need to realize that our pain is real. If you're a Christian, take it to God. If you're not, tell somebody and start that healing process. But also I pray that each and every one of you would know that God is better. That God is more powerful than this pain. That God is more powerful than this suffering. That God is real and he's here and he wants to walk with you in the midst of it. He wants to start and help you to process your pain. I know it hurts. I know it's hard. But I pray you know that God is better. And that God wants you to know that he will never forsake you. That he will never leave you. And he's always been there to let you know, I am with you, even in the darkest of times. And he's shown that because in the darkest of times, that's when he sent Jesus. 
And the man who shouldn't have suffered the punishment of sin, that's the man who did suffer the punishment of sin. And his resurrection represents God's promise to make everything right, to make everything new. So I'm not going to lie, that's all I got. But I think that's more than enough. Let's pray. Dear Father, I thank you that you are a God who sent his son to be alone in order so that we could scream that we're never alone. That we could cry out to you and you will answer us and that you will walk with us in the midst of our pain, in the midst of our shame, in the midst of whatever is going on. That even when all the walls seem to be crumbling down, all we'll see is Christ. And so I pray that we will be able to admit, to acknowledge that our suffering, our pain, this is real. But also to acknowledge that You are far better, are far greater, are far more powerful. And that you are working everything to the goal of making everything brand new, to make everything right, to make everything beautiful, to a future glory that won't be compared to the suffering that we are experiencing right now. So I just pray, Father. Help us to trust in that promise. Amen.